Hello, fellow Rebel Capitals. Hope you're well. So I wanted to go over a report that I have been doing. I have been putting together myself. And it's kind of uh, kind of like a black swan, or what I think is is the most likely black swan that we face today, and something that could play out in 2024, maybe 2025. And what's interesting is the fact that so many people are talking about a dollar crash, but I think that this would actually be much worse. And um, although the end game might be the exact same, which is very interesting. Uh, that's some, that's the type of stuff that I like to think about and use these thought experiments. But first and foremost, let's go over to, actually, this is going to be one of the benefits that you guys get uh, for being a Rebel Capitalist channel subscriber. So if you're, I never, ever ask you to subscribe, but if you've not subscribed, go ahead and subscribe now. Uh, although YouTube won't show you the videos anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so forget that. It's just a big waste of your time. <laughs> uh, but um, let's go over to a rough draft of this report that I've been working on. Now, most of the stuff that I do, as you guys know, is just kind of right off the cuff. And then the whiteboard videos, I have a little bit more time to organize my thoughts. And usually those whiteboard videos are are based on a framework that I've developed over the past five years of doing this stuff nonstop. And especially over the last, what, three or four years when I've done literally over 3,000 videos, 3,000 videos, can you believe that? That's the truth. I've done over 3,000 videos in the last four years on this topic. Um, but this is a, a rough draft of what I'm working on right now. And it's a more complete synthesis of my ideas based on what I think could be a black swan event that nobody's really paying attention to. In fact, they're paying attention to the opposite, which is by definition, I guess, a black swan event that no one's really considering it or no one's even thinking about it. So let's go over to this report, which I think you guys will know. Now, to be clear, I'm by no means an academic. I've probably never even written a report in my life. I almost flunked out of high school. I have never taken an econ class. I've never taken a business class. I've, but then I've never taken a class on how to do YouTube either. And I got pretty good at that. <laughs> so anyway, uh, this is a rough draft. You guys get it. I'm by no means a writer. I'm, I've, I have no experience doing this. But again, I think this is a better synthesis of the overall idea as opposed to just tweeting something and really the 140 characters, no one knows what the hell you're talking about. Or on a live stream like this, I don't have any reference point. So a lot of times I'm just kind of talking right over people's heads because not everyone is at the same level of understanding. So I'm going to kind of summarize here just like I would a CNBC article. I say, let's start by recognizing an undebatable fact. And most of you will know this from watching my videos, but for some of you who are new, We'll kind of get up to speed. Banks create dollars by lending them into existence. They don't lend dollars that already exist. This is a crucial distinction to make. Why? Because when a loan is created, it creates money. And when the loan is paid off, it destroys the money. Therefore, the amount of money in the system is totally dependent on the rate at which loans are created and the rate at which they're paid off. Conversely, if a dollar that was printed, like a green piece of paper, if that was lent, 
uh, or if that was paid back, then it had no impact on money supply at all. Moving on. We also understand that the number of dollars is also less than the principal plus interest. And big hat tip shout out to my good buddy, Mike Maloney, who illustrated that in his iconic video series, Hidden Secrets of Money. So again, when a, a bank gives you a loan for $500,000, your account is credited the $500,000, but you don't owe $500,000. You owe $500,000 plus interest. So let's just say that over the span of that loan, you need to pay back, let's just say 600,000. Okay, well, they only created 500,000. So there's literally not enough currency units to pay back the existing principal plus interest, unless there's velocity or high rates of velocity. Okay, so either, oh, here I go, I go right into it. So either velocity has to be high or more loan dollars need to be created to avoid defaults. Additionally, if velocity decreases or is low, more loans dollars than otherwise would have been needed have to be created to compensate for the lack of circulation of dollars that currently exist. Or the entities that owe the dollars will have to sell assets, often other currencies, to make the debt payments. Why would they have to do that? Because they don't have the dollars, right? Because the, the circulation is slowing down. So let me give you an example here that everyone can relate to. Say that you have a mortgage payment that's $2,000, not yen or pesos or, or Bitcoin or gold, $2,000 per month. Okay, fantastic. Well, as long as you have your job, you got your cash flow coming in, you can make that payment. But what happens if velocity slows down? Well, if velocity slows down in a debt-based monetary system, that means you're going to likely have a deflationary bust. And if you have a deflationary bust, what happens to the unemployment rate? That goes up. And what would unfortunately happen to your job? Likely. You, or, or you could potentially lose your job. So if you lose your job, now all of a sudden you don't have that dollar cash flow coming in to pay your $2,000 a month monthly payment. So you've got two, op two options. Either you could default on that payment and you lose all your equity and the house goes back to the bank or what you could do is sell some of your other assets. Well, with these entities outside the United States, what other assets are they going to have? They're gonna have their local currency. So as an example, if you're in Japan, you probably going to have some yen cash on your balance sheet. So you would sell that yen cash to buy the dollars to pay the bank. Or in the case of the average Georgian, you would sell your car or sell your baseball card collection, something like that, to get the dollars you need to make that loan payment. And once you make the loan payment to the bank, the principal decreases the loan amount, right? And therefore those dollars oof, are gone. In fact, the interest technically is gone as well. Because what happens, let's say you have $2,000 in your bank account. Well, if you make that $2,000 payment, the, uh, the account balance goes from $2,000 down to zero. So what just happened to overall money supply? It went down by $2,000. It's no longer there. Or most people think that if they, give, that if they make a $2,000 payment to the bank, that the bank now has $2,000 that it can go out and lend out. Well, I gave you $2,000, therefore the bank has $2,000. No. Not the way it works. It is not the way it works. When you make a $2,000 payment to the bank, they don't get $2,000. Their assets don't increase by $2,000. They, 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 they simply decrease their liabilities.
Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options, Jason Hartman, real estate, and Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. Now that we've established this, uh, let's take a look at the dollar crash narrative and take it to its logical conclusion. The argument is foreign entities that are going to start transacting in other currencies, decreasing demand for dollars. If there's less demand for dollars, the dollar value relative to other currencies will decrease. The dollar value goes down. This will incentivize other foreign entities to quote unquote dump dollars. And it becomes, uh, and it because, oh, it becomes, ah, there's my first typo, becomes a vicious downward cycle. All those dollars flood back into the United States, causing extreme domestic inflation. Because this is the argument that all the Saudis, they have all these trillions of dollars. Well, they're going to start trading back and forth with the Russians and the Chinese and the Brazilians and the South Africans in some sort of BRICS currency. They're not going to need those dollars. So what the hell are they going to do with them? Well, they're either going to sell them out to the FX market or, most likely, they're going to take those dollars, send them right back to the United States to buy U.S. assets that are going to keep up with the rate of inflation. That's the narrative. So all those dollars flood back into the U.S., causing extreme domestic inflation, which makes the dollar even less attractive to foreigners, and the doom loop is exacerbated. What makes this narrative so enticing to the point of going viral, or what makes this narrative so enticing to the point of going viral is it makes sense. The same way the sun rotating around the earth makes sense because you can see the sun moving during the day. The problem is the monetary system, like the solar system, uh, was during the time of Copernicus. It not only is complex, but very counterintuitive. Therefore, to properly assess the dollar crash narrative, we need a monetary telescope. And this is kind of the verbiage that my buddy Steve Keen used when I interviewed him the other day, which is simply a balance sheet. So now let's start by this thought experiment, taking it to its logical conclusion. What we're going to do is assume that the demand for dollars outside the United States is going down. Okay. And we're, we're, you, once we go through this, in, in fact, here in a couple minutes, you're, the, the, the uh, black swan event is probably going to click with most of you. You're going to be like, oh, I, I see where he's going with this. Uh, I see. And then I think at the end of this, you're going to, no matter what view you have, you're going to see how the probabilities of this happening, um, or at least the conclusion I come to, is pretty darn high. So let's assume for a moment there are $50 trillion outside the United States. So said another way, the aggregate balance sheet of all the entities outside the United States, so let's just assume the non-bank entities. All the non-bank entities, whether they're in Brazil, Russia, UK, Singapore, Cayman Islands, whatever, Tokyo, the aggregate balance sheet of all of those non-bank entities has $50 trillion, and we'll just say it's, it's U.S. dollars, of assets. 
okay? Cash assets. So what we do is we start off with this balance sheet, the assets on the left, the liabilities on the right, and we got a B here. That's a typo, should be a T. So we've got 50 trillion of cash dollar assets on the balance sheet, the aggregate balance sheet of all the non-bank entities outside the US. Pretty straightforward. But what we now realize is that those dollars that are assets on this balance sheet were lent into existence. So we can't just look at the asset side. And this is the mistake that most people make, especially the experts. They, they completely ignore the liability side. So since those $50 trillion were lent into existence, we, we know that that's not debatable. We also have to add the liabilities, which would be $50 trillion. Again, that's supposed to be it. So what happens is all these entities have all this, these currency units, all these dollars, but at some point in time, they've got to pay those dollars back to the bank plus interest, right? Okay. So, and the way I say it here is, but those 50 trillion were lent into existence. So the aggregate balance sheet outside the United States would also have 50 trillion of dollar denominated debt as an offsetting liability to those 50 trillion in assets. So I think this is pretty straightforward. Uh, most people that watch this channel, you get this easy peasy. Let's go straight down to this one because I go over a few different examples of what these entities could do with the dollars they have on their balance sheet if they don't want them anymore. The demand, if they're quote unquote de-dollarizing, you see right here. So the first thing they could sell their dollars for currency, but we're going to have to save that for the actual report. If you guys want to see that, you have to read the final draft when we get it done here. But the next thing that they could do and this is what most people think of when they kind of think of de-dollarizing, is they would use those dollars to buy U.S. assets. That's what we talked about. So you've got the sheik, the Arab sheik, and he's got a billion dollars. He didn't want it anymore because he wants to deal in rubles. So he's like, well, I've got these things. I don't know what to do with them. I don't really want or I don't need any other currencies. So you know what? I'm going to send these dollars back to the United States because I want to buy that building in New York City. I think it's cheap or something like that. So those billion dollars would come flooding back into the United States. So for uh, easy math, what we're doing here is we're going to assume that outside of the United States, remember, there's 50 trillion, uh, or I'll just say 50 billion, so we're consistent here, 50 billion in assets, 50 billion in dollar debt, therefore liabilities. But then we're also going to assume that in the United States, they got a different balance sheet. Because remember, we've just been talking about entities outside the US. So inside the US, they've got, let's say, 20 trillion of dollar cash assets. But same thing, those $20 trillion were created by lending them into existence. So if they've got 20 trillion on the uh, let's pull up this. Here we go. So it's the exact same thing inside the United States, but instead of 50, we've got 20. So again, two separate balance sheets, one outside of the United States with 50 and 50, one inside with 20 and 20. And the reason these numbers are identical is because all those dollars, it's undebatable, they were lent into existence. Now, you can say, uh, George, technically that's not right because there's green pieces of paper and whatnot. Okay, granted, right now we're just talking about checking deposit liabilities. So suppose $10 trillion. So now, instead of the, the sheik with a billion dollars, now all of Saudi Arabia says, you know what, we're going to tell the United States to pound sand. They've been 
putting you know all these sanctions on Iran and in Russia and no we're not playing that game anymore so we've got 10 trillion and we're going to send that right back to the United States and buy 10 trillion dollars worth of apple shares or whatever so those 10 trillion dollars flood back into the United States so here we go now we're back to the report suppose 10 trillion comes flooding back into the United States by stocks real estate etc how do the balance sheets change outside of the US there are now 40 trillion of assets Remember, because those 10 trillion came in. So there's 50 trillion to start. 10 trillion came inside of the United States. So now outside of the United States, there's only 40, right? But inside the United States, there's now an additional 10 trillion. So the balance sheet outside goes from 50 down to 40, but you still have the 50 in liabilities. And then if you go down to the United States, it's the opposite from the standpoint of you have an additional 10 in assets, 30 total, but you only have 20 in liabilities. So what does this do, this, this dynamic? Let's go through this. As a result, there's an undersupply of dollars outside the U.S. relative to demand uh, to pay debt and oversupply of dollars inside the U.S. Adding insult to injury, the maturity of the debt inside the U.S. is likely much longer given the oversupply of dollars are giving the oversupply of dollars more time to put downward pressure on the dollar versus U.S. domestic goods and services. Did you catch that, guys? If not, I'm going to go over it again right here. Because of the undersupply outside and shorter maturity of debt. This is key. This makes all the difference in the world. Why? Let's just assume for a moment that you uh, that this debt, these dollars were created uh, with a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. Okay. You don't, and let's just say it's a balloon payment. You don't have to worry about making that payment for 30 years. So those dollars can circulate. They can go all over the place, velocity, whatever. They're, look, whoever needs those dollars to pay off that loan, again, they're not going to need them for a very, very long period of time. So all those additional dollars can absolutely create downward pressure on the value of the dollar. But what happens if that loan is due tomorrow or next week? Now, all of a sudden, We've got a much, much, much different dynamic, don't we? Because if you have that whatever uh, million dollars on your balance sheet as an asset and you owe a million dollars next week, you're probably not going to sell that million dollars or you're not going to go out and buy gold or you're not going to go out and buy stocks or real estate. Why? Because you got to make that million dollar payment in three days or whatever it is. So you're going to keep that. Th those dollars are not going to travel with velocity at all. Whereas if it was 30 years, yeah, why am I going to keep these dollars on my balance sheet? No, I want to buy Bitcoin. I want to buy gold. I want to buy real estate. I want to buy T-bills. I'm going to go to the movies, whatever. You see the difference? So what we have to understand is the maturity of debt outside of the United States, very, very low. I've read some reports from the BIS stating that the vast majority of it is under a year in maturity less than a year. So what ends up happening, again, let's go back to this, because we have an undersupply of dollars. Remember, 40, we start at 50-50, now we're down to 40-50. Undersupply of dollars, very short-term maturity debt. People are going to start looking around saying, oh my gosh, we got to pay back this 50 trillion, but we only got 40. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's just get that other 10. We can't. Why? It's in the U.S., and the only way we can get it out might be able to borrow it back. But who wants that? No one wants dollars. <laughs> so what, what, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We have to make sure that they run a $10 trillion trade deficit next year. And that might not work because my debt might come due before that. See the problem? 
So what do they end up doing? Well, they try to roll over the debt, but that's going to be very difficult in that environment. Or what they can also do is they can sell their local currency. It's on their balance sheet. So they sell all this yen because there's just not enough dollars because all the dollars went back into the United States. And ironically, it created massive consumer price inflation in the United States. While at the same time, because everyone's selling whatever they have to get the dollars to pay down the 50 trillion debt that's due next Thursday, <laughs> what happens to the dollar relative to other currencies? It goes straight up. It goes straight up. All right. I think what we're going to do now is press the pause button. I would like to continue, but I've got to go to physical therapy. But Josh and I will come back as soon as I get done with physical therapy and we'll do part two. And then we'll go over the rest of the report and get to that black swan event and these doom loops that I was referring to at the beginning. So hold tight. 